with us uh, because we're talking today about uh, about Cuba and uh, and it's really very exciting because uh, because one of the differences that's happening now is um, is uh, this juxtaposition between the United States and uh, and Cuba um, you know, what did you say earlier, Terry? You said the United States exports weapons and Cuba exports doctors. That's a, that's a, that's a long time saying since the, since the days of Cuba ex beginning to train and send doctors overseas. The difference in foreign policy is the United States exports weapons and the and Cuba exports doctors, and it's a profound difference in in the approach to foreign policy between the two countries. And we're seeing that play out very visibly during this COVID-19 pandemic. I I think one of the things that that is particularly striking is, and we're both we're both. Um, I think we should have this disclaimer. We're I think we're both, or certainly I am a Cuba file. Um, I over the many times I've visited there with what I've seen and, uh, and, and experienced from the people, uh, through the government. Well, so I'm really pleased because we're going to be able to expand on this subject, um, with Manolo Enrique joining us live from Cuba. So we're going to have a really profound conversation this morning, um, to be able to hear you know, from someone living and working in Cuba and get some, you know, live 
comments from the ground. I think the first thing that I would like to share before we start a broader conversation is about me particularly in talking about issues like this with Latin America and the Caribbean. For me, my context is as a white, English-speaking North American, and I just have to be very candid with everyone watching and listening this morning, that, that that's, that's, you know, the part of humanity I was born and raised in. I've spent 40 years traveling Latin America and the Caribbean and truly feel the biggest contribution I can make to Latin American solidarity work is to bring the stories back to the United States to expose um, people here and even people in Washington, D.C. and on the Hill as to, you know, bring true real personal experiences and stories of people who often, whose lives and stories often are neglected in U.S. mainstream media. And so um, it's really, really important for the, di for the education of our audience to have people like Enrique Manolo um, uh, join us from, sorry, I'm hearing a little bit of reverberation, so I apologize. Um, it's really important to have voices such as Manolo's come directly from the countries and and the live personal experience. So with that, maybe we should open Manolo. Welcome so much. Can you see and hear us just fine? Manolo is. We can see him because you know. Let me just tell our our listeners that. Uh, that I can see you and I can hear you and with a little uh, frozen. Oh, okay. Would it be better for you, uh, Manolo, just to do audio and not use the bandwidth for video? Or maybe it doesn't matter. So here we are. Working with Skype again, and listeners, please be patient with us. We'll, uh, we'll we'll get this through because we have this wonderful guest and uh, and wonderful expertise. So um, it's uh, it's it's so heartening when you realize, or I realize, how bad things are in this country. That there are actually living models that um, that we can use. And, uh, and take advantage of. So, um, while we're waiting to see if he can return, um, Jerry, you have, the, among us, has been most recently in Cuba. Um, what, what was your impression? Of course, this is before the, uh, the... Well, I will just briefly say, because it looks like uh, Manolo has been able to rejoin us, the biggest thing we saw, this was a Code Pink delegation in um, December of 2019. We traveled with 52 uh, North American citizens to Cuba. And the biggest thing that those of us saw who have been there before is the devastating effect of the expansions on U.S., the expansion of U.S. economic sanctions on both Cuba and Venezuela. The biggest thing being the, um, the lack of Venezuelan oil uh, being able to be shipped to Cuba. The oil that comes from Venezuela is what Cuba uses for transportation fuel. And so there were very few cars on the street, limited bus service, and, and then all, you know, the repercussions of not having transportation fuel oil. That was the biggest thing we saw, and it was a direct uh, result of the expansion of U.S. 
um, economic sanctions on both countries. And so it looks like we have Manolo back with us. So, Manolo, what, what we would like you to share with our listeners this morning, I guess let's open first, um, give us a little, give our audience a little background of yourself, and then if you could please give us an update um, of what average citizens are experiencing on the ground in Cuba right now, and then we can take the conversation to a more comparative discussion about Cuba policy and U.S. policy on a social, economic, and um, political um, avenue. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me on your radio program. I'm honored to just be on, on the line with comrades of Code Pink, who have been leading some of the most important battles for peace and justice um, against warrants, uh, courageous women and men across the United States who stand with with the people of the world against sanctions and blockades. As we speak, the situation in Cuba is difficult because the island continues to be blockaded in spite of this global pandemic. Other than that, Cuba is demonstrating what it means to live in a sustainable society that cares for the people, that looks for ways to, in spite of any type of crisis, whether it's healthcare-wise or economic, to always look for the well-being and the welfare of the people. As we speak, there are no Cubans who have been evicted from their homes. There is no Cuban who has been denied health care. There is no Cuban who has been denied the right to eat. The socialist revolution of Cuba and this wide system of welfare for the people has made sure that despite the insanity of this blockade that continues to impact the Cuban people, that at the same time they're still be taken care of. And that luckily due to the system and also this wide system of healthcare in the country, which is public and national and at no cost to the population, with over 90,000 doctors on the ground, the virus has had has not had the major impact that it's had in some other countries. And and that's that's quite extraordinary. I mean, when we when we look at at the infrastructure in this country, and what's missing, and uh, and and we look at Cuba and what is not missing, despite the hardships. Um, it's actually staggering. Well, what's astounding to me is that not only is Cuba taking care of its own citizens, it's helping take care of global citizens as well. So, Manolo, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the healthcare system itself and what you are living on the ground there, what it actually looks like, um, what citizens on the ground in Cuba are actually seeing. Um, with their healthcare system, and then maybe we could also um, talk about the brigades that are being sent um, to foreign countries as well. Well, when we talk about the healthcare system in Cuba, I always like to talk about what it was not before 1959. You had a, a highly unequal society in which access to healthcare was determined 
by your economic status and position in society. Like it is here Meaning, today. Like the U.S. is today and many countries around the world. Essentially, if you were black, if you were mulatto, if you were poor, if you were a sugarcane worker, if you were like the majority of people in our societies, you were condemned to die of some of the most basic diseases. And one of the most illuminating transformations that came with the triumph of the revolution in 1959 is that value was placed on human life itself. And it came from a situation in which in 1959, Cuba had less than 3,000 doctors for an island of millions. And it had to engage in a process by which it, at one, at the same time that it trained doctors and nurses by the thousands, it also had to begin to create consciousness around healthcare as a right of the people and something that the people engage with in order to protect their own lives. So the healthcare system is not just about the thousands of doctors and nurses that exist in Cuba, but exists at every level in the community, in the municipalities, in the provincial levels, how normal and ordinary people participate to do prevention work, to make sure that their neighbors are taken care of, to find many times alternatives when there are lacks of medicine. And in this moment, we've seen a huge demonstration of this collectivity towards the healthcare in the fact that Cuba didn't have access to hundreds of thousands of tests for COVID. In part because of its been strangulated by the blockade, and Cuba has not been able to purchase many of these. The few tests that it's been able to receive have been donations from the People's Republic of China in a huge act of solidarity. Can but we just Cuba take was, a, talk about China very quickly? Because my understanding is there was a, um, a shipment um, sent from China of medical supplies and technology that was detained, pirated, What's happened with that? I'm sorry for the interruption, but that's been in the news. And maybe we could quickly address that and then move on to China's solidarity work with Cuba. Well, what happened is actually a good illustration of how the blockade functions. In China, a private foundation, not the, not the Chinese government, but a private foundation in China, the Jack Ma Foundation, um, led by the billionaire Jack Ma, donated a series of equipments for many countries around the world, including the U.S. They sent donations to 20, over 20 countries in Latin America, over 50 countries in Africa, and they also wanted to send aid to China. But the carrier that was in charge of making these deliveries to each country was actually owned and operated by the U.S., by U.S. private company, which meant that urgent life-saving equipment and protective gear for doctors and tests was prevented from arriving in Cuba. Ah. But to me, the more beautiful end of the story is that despite this aid being detained and blocked, people in China began to collect money 
and the Chinese government itself decided to send aid uh, through other means and through other ways to make sure that the Cuban had Cuban people had access to. But so, more important aid, more important than the test, more important than even sometimes having this medicine, is that Cuba put out into the streets of every city, of every province, of every community in Cuba, thousands of doctors, of medical students, and community leaders and activists to basically go door by door to check for the symptoms of every house in Cuba. In only a week of doing these searches, they were able to already check the symptoms for close to 7 million people. So this is so, uh, Manolo, this is basically the foundation, the backbone of the Cuban um, healthcare and medical system is preventative health care, as you mentioned um, a few minutes ago, and also um, the direct community involvement with health care providers, which I have to say we are not seeing any of that here in in the States. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about these in-home, in these community visits, these in-home visits. My understanding is there's a doctor in every neighborhood. I, I forget exactly where um, how many um, households or patients, um, but that's a significant difference, hands-on community preventative health care. Well, imagine that there is actually a doctor listed for each community. There is... There are doctors that visit every community on a regular basis and on a regular basis they check for people's livelihoods they check for their health they check for whether they're eating well and this was just another situation in which people's health needed to be checked in with so each home was visited by a doctor or a student or a community leader and through a protocol that was established nationwide people's temperatures were checked people were also checked to see what any other symptoms were demonstrated in the home, if there had been anyone in the home that had traveled from abroad, a series of questions. And more importantly, I think questions that many times doctors in other places of the world ignore. They also ask, well, what has your diet been? What measures are you taking to protect yourself? Do you have clean access to water in order to continue to wash your hands and keep things clean in your home? And a series of other questions to make sure that people are being taken care of. You know, it's, it's so interesting. One of the things that's been on, on our local news in the past couple of days is, is the number of poor people, uh, black, brown, and white poor people in this country who are succumbing to the virus. And... And what's so interesting to me is you talk about diets. One of the things is if you're already, if your immune system is already compromised, if you're already not nutrient-filled, you are more vulnerable. It's not so much your lungs necessarily or your heart. It's your whole physicality. And when you talk about the doctors focusing on good food, good eating, good health, um, as a as a baseline 
um, again, it's something that uh, that really flies in the face of the the U.S. way of life. If you've got lots, you get lots, and if you're deprived in any way, it shows up. And so thank you for that reminder. And if you want to elaborate any more on, on the, the holistic health care of Cuba, that would be very helpful. No, I would, I would state that ultimately what is most important for Cuba as a nation is to protect human life. There is nothing more precious than human life itself. And Cuba will go at all lengths will go through all costs to protect the lives of its people. But there's an important element to this, which is that in protecting its own lives, the lives of the Cuban people, there's a great sense of internationalism, a great sense that Cuba is part of a larger humanity, that Cuba cannot exist without this larger humanity, and therefore it has the responsibility to send the best of its people to help and be there for others in these difficult times. Right now in, you know, in March, at the end of March, as the pandemic was being declared around the world, in a matter of a week, Cuba decided to send 14 brigades to 14 different countries across Latin America, Africa, and Europe as requests are coming from over 50 different countries. And many people will say, well, Cuba is a small island. Why is it doing any of this? What is the, what does it get out of this? Most people will say, well, Cuba is trying to get, this is a publicity stunt. <laughs> but Cuba doesn't get anything out of this other than the pleasure that lives are being saved. It's willing to put its own people at risk to save others. Cuba did this when a British cruiser, cruise liner, that was traveling in the Caribbean on a vacation, had several cases of coronavirus on board. It being a British cruiser, it first asked for permission to land in ports that belong to Commonwealth countries, countries that have a long tradition of relationship uh, to the United Kingdom, despite that no country opened its ports to this cruise liner, and they were wandering around the Caribbean for days without getting any positive response. In including the United States. The United States did not allow that ship to, to dock in any U.S. ports as well. Yet Cuba was the country that offered itself up knowledgeable that it was taking a, a, a health risk by opening its docks, but understanding that it had a responsibility to the humanity of these people on board. And Cuba is not trying to get any favors from the government of Boris Johnson, which is a, a conservative, neoliberal government that doesn't care about the people. It's simply doing its duty to humanity. And, it's and that for us is, the, is an important element of Cuba's response to this crisis. I just want to remind our listeners, um, if you've just tuned in after we began, you're listening to Anolo Enrique, who is talking to us from Cuba right now. 
Um, and we're looking at, of course, the differences and, and the humanitarian impetus that, that uh, Cuba has. Um, you know, when you when you talked about the uh, the respect for life, the the wanting to provide uh, life, life affirming and life giving measures for people, um, I'm struck by the president of the United States a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we don't want the cure to be worse than the cause or the or the illness. And what he was really saying to us was, we need people to go back to work. That unlike human mandate for health and and livelihood, the the emphasis on living, um, this this empire in which Donald Trump reigns. Of death and of out of control capitalism, and so so it's so refreshing to hear you um, talk about another way, and to encourage people in this country who are listening to uh, to realize that there are viable differences. These are not pie in the sky ideals, and uh, so let's let's go back, if you will, to uh, to the countries who have requested that Cuba send medical aid? Well, as recently, several countries in Europe, several countries in Latin America, most recently Mexico requested and just received a group of 10 medical specialists to help in their response to the coronavirus. Uh, it's been an important process. Recently, Barbados also requested uh, a group of nurses, and they received 100 nurses. Uh, to support the response to the coronavirus there. And Cuba at this point, you know, is already thinking, more importantly, not so much, you know, they are not in the capacity, Cuba is not in the capacity to send thousands of doctors around the world at this point. But where it can, it is lending a hand. And it's basing many of these decisions on where are the countries that are in most need where are the countries that are, have populations that have least access to health care and are at a greater disadvantage, which is why Cuba, for example, has been sending mainly a lot of brigades to the smaller Caribbean islands, which are many times in this moment being deprived of medical supplies even by the U.S., even though they're not blockaded. Yes. And what is, we, the world is looking at a, a moment of global piracy by the United States as it robs other countries of access to medical supplies. The United States as a global pirate. How does that sit? I think it's called the Southern Command. <laughs> the Southern Command, the African Command, the Indo-Pacific Strategy. It's sad that in this moment in which the U.S. could actually be making a positive step towards aiding humanity, actually continues to spend money on war, on sanctions, continues to spend money to strangle other countries' economies and the health of other peoples around the world, and in doing so also takes away resources from its own people. Why do so many people in the United States have to die in this moment? For what? For the profits of few? That is sometimes, it's very clear to us that that is the fundamental difference between 
not the socialist model of Cuba and the capitalist model, but simply another way of organizing life, another way in which we can put life at the center, not of politics, but of the way we rebuild humanity. And, and that is certainly, that's so telling. Um, do you see any, any kind of breakthrough with other countries? Um, I mean, I know the United States in the, in the UN can veto almost anything, but, um, but with the, the international community taking note, not only of what you could offer, but actually asking Cuba for help, um, does, do you think in any way shift the balance? Well, in, I think it shifts the balance in a moral and ethical sense. Because I think many countries are being, in many ways, moved by Cuba's example of, A, providing care for its own people, of providing doctors and nurses around the world, and also to provide life-saving medicine to treat this coronavirus around the world at, not, at no or low cost at all. That is, that is what is being moved in this sense. In many sense, a new paradigm is being built, not just by Cuba, but by many other countries around the world, Vietnam, China, Venezuela, and many others that together are building, I think, uh, the axis for life versus the axis of evil, death, censored in the U.S. So, Manolo, we need to take a, a quick um, station break. But we'd like to have you continue on us with air in a couple minutes. And let's talk when we um, come back after this short break. Let's follow up on your comments and talk about um, what we're, how we're seeing this play out globally and um, the stark differences that you have mentioned between U.S. Uh, policy and culture versus Cuban global solidarity. So let's take a quick break, and then uh, we'll be back in a couple minutes to follow up on our conversation with Manolo Enrique, direct from Cuba. All right, and you're listening to WPFW and WBAI, and we'll be back in a few moments.
So welcome back to welcome back to Code Pink Radio. This morning you are listening on WPFW and WBAI. Our guest this morning is Manolo Enrique, Enrique, excuse me, who is coming to us from Havana, Cuba. And um, I'm talking to one of your hosts with Terry. Terry Manson here in Washington, D.C. with Taki. So, uh, Manolo, please uh, rejoin us. You have so much to share. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you all on the, on the radio. We, we can hear you better from Cuba than we can hear ourselves with the, with the Internet here in the United States. There, there's another kudo to, to Cuba outperforming the U.S., so when when we um, left for our break, we were talking about you know the the global environment, the geopolitical uh, map of the world, and the differences between the Cuba response to coronavirus and the U.S. response. And we had mentioned some of this quote unquote piracy that the United States is committing right now to prevent healthcare medical supplies getting to countries, but also in some cases just to flat out deny the humanitarian aid to countries, but in other cases to um, pirate that those supplies bring them here to the United States. One of the things maybe we could talk about in a greater scale, um, and this kind of dovetails on a few of your comments earlier, is how the wealthier northern hemisphere countries, what they are doing and how this is affecting um, some of the, if not all, of the Global South's ability to um, fully respond to the coronavirus outbreaks in their own countries. Well, I think that the response of countries in the Global North has been diverse. Not all countries have responded in the same way. Not all countries have had to confront the crisis in the same way. I mean, I think there's even a, a big difference from way the way countries like Italy and Spain have had to confront the crisis compared to the United States, in part because they, I think after a week or so of dealing with the pandemic, countries like Italy and Spain quickly had to realize that they needed to take drastic measures to save the lives of their own people. And that saving the lives of their people wasn't just a question of providing medical attention. That a lot of that had to do with, in this crisis, if people are not working, then there cannot be measures to evict people from their homes when they're not able to pay the rent. That there cannot be measures to cut people's access to electricity, to gas, to water, if they cannot pay for these services. That ultimately the the necessity to defend life is has to be taken to a more holistic, integral point of view. And it's been sad to see that the response of the United States government to the plight of its own people has cannot go beyond a twelve hundred dollar check, knowing that that still will not reach millions of people, millions of workers and poor people in the United States. Now, in how it impacts people of the Global South, to be honest, 
the impact that it gives us is not necessarily the one that we would expect, but rather that the people of the global south have been continually under a state of crisis. What we see, how we see the coronavirus pandemic affect countries of the global south is a continuation of the state of war and sanctions that the countries of the global north have continuously led on them for as long as we can tell, for as long as we can remember. The coronavirus pandemic in many countries of the global north, sadly, has not changed the tune at which many of these global north countries, or we would say imperialist countries, continue to attack countries of the south, of the global south. Very few countries have been willing to stand with Iran or stand with Venezuela in these difficult moments. Venezuela, the people of Venezuela requested in a very, I think, telling moment of how deep the crisis is and how it affects them that they requested aid from the IMF. And they were immediately denied. Usually the IMF takes days and weeks to consider these requests and the IMF denied it in a matter of hours. So my understanding this is the, the, the IMF funding was denied because the institution could not determine who the actual president of Venezuela is. Is that they could not, or they chose not. To. They chose not to. Is probably the better. That, that's that's the more correct way to say it. Yes, thank you. Which is sad, considering that when the governments of Europe, when they wanted to evacuate their citizens, as they've done from many countries, in the case of Venezuela, they could only contact one government. There wasn't, they didn't contact Guaido to, to request that their citizens be evacuated or to guarantee their citizens access to their embassy or consulate. They had to go through the Venezuelan government, the legitimate government of President Maduro. But my bigger point is that ultimately what we've seen now in this crisis of the coronavirus is only a continuation of the constant state of war and sanctions that the global north places on the peoples of the world. Uh, one of the things that I'm heartened by is the number of nations in the world who are demanding that uh, that the sanctions be lifted. And I think so you're, it's so telling. I love this story you just told of how when the people of, of various countries, the, the, uh, the diplomats were leaving, that, uh, that they got okay, they got um, safe passage through the legitimate elected government, and uh, and it just flies in the face of this this American, this U.S. charade, and uh, and maybe this virus is helping to to shift the narrative. Uh, I'm hoping that not only the narrative but the actual um, positioning and and actions of various countries both in the global north and in the south, um, can stand up to this this ridiculous country we're living in. Um, uh, that's just my hope right now. My well, it's, it's definitely become harder for the U.S. to hide, to cover the cruelty of its programs of war and sanctions on the peoples of Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, and others. It's incredibly hard to hide 
the hurt and the pain and the death that they cause on the peoples of the world. It's becoming harder for them to disguise these policies that on top of a deadly virus add hunger, add more difficulties, make more difficult their access to even basic medicines. Yes. It certainly is. Go ahead, Karen. We see, I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but we see with this, with the sanctions and with this completely different paradigm and approach to the coronavirus or COVID-19 in other countries, how the United States is, is quite willing, or the United States government is quite willing to deny humanitarian aid to bring countries to its knees to basically, and I would specifically cite Iran and Venezuela, to basically attempt to take advantage of a bad situation and, and really uh, vanquish a country while it's struggling in, in, in a humanitarian crisis. And to me, it's basically a form of, of genocide to just say, well, let the people, people die in order to bring down a government we don't um, approve of, agree with, like, you know, et cetera. So it's really so compelling, Manolo, to hear you talk today, continually reiterate the necessity to depend to defend people, and in many ways we've talked about it with healthcare, with these house-to-house -house doctor visits, with the development of the interferon alpha 2b, with exporting medical brigades to 14 countries, and I'm fascinated to hear there's actually 50 that are requesting Cuban medical brigades. So, you, so this necessity to defend people versus here in the United States, it's a necessity to defend profits, and it's just. A com two completely different paradigms of existence. And know and take this message to the people in Cuba that there are so many people in the U.S. who are standing with you, who embrace that love of life, that affirmation of humanity that our government is not doing, and that someday we will prevail. Well, I have a deep Yes. Hope, a, a, a strong hope that what comes out of this crisis, what comes out of this pandemic, are people in the United States being more conscious, more aware, and more willing to fight for their own lives in the United States, for to fight for lives of dignity for the people of the United States, to fight for public health care in the United States, so that these viruses and these pandemics never hurt the people of the U.S. in the same way again, but also integrate into their new consciousness the need to end all sanctions, all blockades, all forms of war against the peoples of the world. Well, that's a wonderful message to, uh, to end with. Thank you so much for being our guest today, and, uh, and we certainly appreciate everything you've had to say. Um, Keep safe and healthy yourself. Please stay healthy and safe yourself, too. And a big hug, a big, deep hug to all the followers and sympathizers of Code Pink. Continue to do the great work that you do. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll keep on keeping on. So...
Uh, now, uh, we'll say goodbye to, uh, Manolo and, uh, and welcome our next guest, who is, uh, Carly Town. And, uh, Carly is the, uh, is the director, is the coordinator of a wonderful campaign, the, uh, the Code Pink campaign for divestment. And, uh, and divest from war. Divestment from war. And, Which dovetails really nicely with our conversation with Manolo. <laughs> it certainly does. And, uh, and next week um, has historically been tax day. And uh, so we're going to ask her to talk about how we're remembering that uh, day. And, uh, and Hello. Welcome, Carly Town, the who heads the coaching development campaign. This is uh, going to be an interesting day. This uh, tax day, because uh, historically that's when people have had to pay taxes or thought they had to pay their taxes, but. Uh, that's been postponed. So, Carly, welcome. No? Well, I see a message that she joined us, but maybe while we get the audio corrected, we can talk a little bit about Code Pink's Divest from War campaign. You know, Code Pink has been an anti-war um organization since its inception in 2003 and so Carly runs our campaign that educates educates US citizens as to where investments are going like say your retirement investment and basically making sure you understand how your tax dollars are spent and how your and where your investments are placed and to take your money out of those investments that in any way, shape or form fund the US war machine. Yeah. And it's been it's been quite a successful campaign already. We've we've divested some uh schools and some other institutions and uh and now this we're getting ready to start a new uh divestment program with uh religious institutions. So, uh, so that'll be coming up and we'll be talking more about that. Um, Carly brought to our, our attention the reminder that the, uh, tax date is coming up and, uh, and suggested that we really take a look at, uh, at what's happening with, um, with our taxes. It's a good opportunity for, to look at our taxes, where they're going, even though, uh, nobody's going to have to pay taxes. On um, on tax day, so um, I know in the past, you know, we were talking about this recently. Years ago, before everybody went online to do their taxes and file, uh, one of our local um, post offices there was a big a big gathering, and I remember one year a group of us code pinkers had 
pink slips and um, and wanted to uh, really focus on on how uh, we wanted at that day. It was at that time it was uh, George W. Bush who we wanted to give the pink slip to on tax day, and uh, I think maybe there are a lot of people who we could give pink slips to any day of the week. Well, you know what, what's fascinating to me and perhaps hopeful with this um, COVID-19 um, outbreak here in the United States is that a lot of citizens are starting to see that taxpayer dollars have been denied to public organizations, infrastructure, institution, including healthcare, and that there's always plenty of money that is available for the Pentagon and the defense industry and that there is now nothing available to help our own general public fight this pandemic here in our own country. And I hope this is a really big wake-up call for people to understand where their tax dollars are going and where they are not going. Well, you know, Terry, I think it's an important thing, that's that question you're asking, because right now there's this, there's this struggle between the Congress and the President on uh, on where the monies, our tax dollars that are that are part of the stimulus, that are part of the, the care bill, um, where, where those dollars are going, and uh, and it's really coming to a head because the president, the imperial president, is saying, "No, I'm the one who's I'm the decider." To uh, to quote another infamous president, and uh, and so I think this is something we're really going to have to look at how we continue to put pressure on our Congress people to stand up to this president. Well, that's going to take a lot of work from the ground, and you know we just we just lost a, a principal. Um, player in helping change the narrative here in Washington, D.C., specifically on the Hill. We lost Bernie Sanders to the presidential campaign yesterday. So it's going to be more and more organizing and more and more public discourse about how to do this. But I think, I hope there is an awakening as to how deprived our population is. You know, in the first part of our show, Manolo continually brought up um, the different ways that the Cuban society, government, political base, economic system defends people. And one of those things was making sure people are, are properly fed, are receiving good, healthy nutrition day to day. We can't even do that here in the United States. No. That's it's so true. We're the wealthiest country in the history of humanity, and we can't guarantee a nutritional daily diet for our own citizens. Yeah, you know, this, let's let's deconstruct that for a moment. This the wealthiest country in the world. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, certainly we have lots of resources, but how much of our wealth has been stolen? Has been taken from other places? Well, maybe uh, I see Carly has been able to join us, so maybe she can talk about where that the other one of the other places that money is going, the war machine specifically. Welcome, Carly. It's so nice to have you with us this morning or this afternoon for us. Hi, thank you so much, Paki and Terry. Nice to see you. Good to see you. So, uh, so you've got this uh, investment campaign and a special activity on leading up to tax day. 
Uh, do you want to tell our listeners about this? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So, you know, you all were talking a little bit about where our money goes. We're supposedly the wealthiest country in the world. Um, you know, tax day is a really important day in American lives. Um, not only because it's a day, obviously, when we're really forced to consider the amount of money we as individuals pay in taxes, but also really like where our tax dollars are actually being used at the federal level, right? I mean, one of the most insidious aspects of living in what we call a war economy is that the direct effects of living in an economy where killing and, and going to war are profitable are often obscured or like hidden from our daily lives. Um, so tax day is one day of the year when we can really start to, to denaturalize the, the role that war plays in our everyday lives. So, you know, for example, to your, to your first question, Becky, it's really important that people understand that we spend 64% of our discretionary budget on the Pentagon. So 64%, that means in 2020, we will spend $740 billion alone on Pentagon spending. Um, and a large portion of the Pentagon budget is made up of federal contracts with private weapons manufacturers, which means at the end of the day, taxpayers are subsidizing the manufacturing of weapons of war and putting money into the pockets of CEOs that these companies, at these companies who make millions of dollars a year. So um, could you give our listeners a couple of tips on what they can do uh, as we as we wind down this program, and thanks for coming on, and thanks for persisting. Um, what have you to say? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Taki. That's great. Um, you know, so to that point, we spend seven hundred forty billion dollars a year on the Pentagon, and at the same time, we've all heard the argument that increasing spending on social programs like universal health care or universal child care is pie in the sky. That will never happen. Um, but we, we, what we really want people to do is speak back to that really obviously false discourse by participating in our online social media action on April 15th, which is tax day, um, to highlight the amount of money that we spend on the Pentagon every year and at the same time to start to imagine what we could do with $740 billion if we stopped funding war and weapons manufacturing. Uh, so people can go to quickly.org slash divest to download our toolkit and learn how to share these images and flood social media on tax day, which is next Wednesday. Thank you.